Hi and welcome to Data Hack Radio. This is Kunal, your host for the show. In this awesome episode, we will talk to Dr. Balaraman Ravindran. Dr. Ravindran is currently a professor at Department of Computer Science and Engineering at IIT Madras. He did his PhD in reinforcement learning from University of Massachusetts, where he worked with Professor Andrew Barto on an algebraic formulation of reinforcement learning. What I loved about this interaction, and you will listen it too, is the way Dr. Ravindran explains reinforcement learning. At multiple places in this podcast, he's talking about some very recent developments in reinforcement learning. He not only simplifies those, but also explains them in a manner that even a beginner can understand them. This is the exact reason why Dr. Ravindran's talk at Data Hack Summit was one of the most popular talk. I can't tell you how much I've learned about reinforcement learning from this single episode. So go on and make sure you listen to this episode with Dr. Ravindran. So Dr. Ravindran, welcome to Data Hack Radio. This is our podcast to with our community members to share what is happening in domain and some of the latest research and development happening in the space of artificial intelligence and machine learning. And I would also like to thank you for, uh, you know, being a speaker at Data Hack Summit and your session. It was uh, one of the best sessions in Data Hack Summit. So uh, can you tell us a bit about your journey, your background? How did you get into uh, artificial intelligence and reinforcement learning? When did you start researching on the subject? So when I was in my undergrad, right? So I always was fascinated by how, uh, you know, whether we can... uh, like build computational models of how people learn. Mm-hmm. And this was way back in early 90s. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the neural networks were all the rage. Mm-hmm. And so I started uh, trying to read up on neural networks on my own. So it's, it's not that we had too many electives on neural networks or anything at that point of time. Maybe if you're in an IIT, you got to learn one. Mm-hmm. So I picked, up, I picked up things on my own. And then I went to do my master's at uh, the Indian Institute of Science. Mm-hmm. There, the more I uh, looked at the state-of-the-art neural networks, the, the you know the more I felt that this was moving far away from you know trying to explain how humans learn. Mm-hmm. And then I came across uh, uh, reinforcement learning. Interesting. But the early papers that I read on reinforcement learning were all about how you know neuroscience uh, people were using uh, reinforcement learning models to help to 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 uh, to model how uh, uh, monkeys learn mm-hmm. oh. what, what behavior of monkeys and so on and so forth and I said hmm, okay here is something that seems to be seriously biologically motivated mm-hmm. and I started reading up on reinforcement learning mm-hmm. in fact I was the only student of my master's advisor professor Satik Kirti mm-hmm. uh, to work on reinforcement learning so his, his primary area was optimization mm-hmm. I'm happy to explore reinforcement learning because it was just another way of doing optimization for him mm-hmm. but uh, for me I was very fascinated by the biological foundations Interesting. I basically started my um, foray into uh, reinforcement learning mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, and where did you read about this research was it in a journal paper i mean how how did you access that because at that time there was this uh, uh, open yeah 
so yeah so this was actually you know being at iisc was a, was a was something that enabled this because back then iisc was one of the very few places where you could even think of accessing you know top quality uh, journals sure okay so several people from around the country used to come and stay in iisc for weeks on end looking for good journals and references mm-hmm. so this was a this was a journal paper mm-hmm. and one of the things that we discovered when i started learning reinforcement learning was there was no good resource for somebody to go and look at that look at reinforcement learning mm-hmm. so what mm-hmm. we did was we wrote a survey paper okay mm-hmm. so we wrote something called a tutorial survey on reinforcement learning mm-hmm. and uh, so we put it up on those days uh, there was this mailing list called connectness mm-hmm. uh, which used to maintain a online archive interesting it was ftp right so not not, not like archive.org yeah. today mm-hmm. so there was a mailing list so the people who were subscribed to that mailing list could go and pull papers from here so mm-hmm. used to ftp archive and so on and so forth mm-hmm. and at one point of time this was one of the top 10 most downloaded papers from the connectness archive or something mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. our tutorial survey on reinforcement learning mm-hmm. and uh, it also caught the eye of uh, you know oxford university press who asked us to write the chapter on reinforcement learning in their handbook of neural computation which came out in 96 interesting mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so so this is something that we did we put together the resource mm-hmm. and i basically trawled through a lot of papers i mean <clears throat> some people might find it amusing but uh, there were times when we had to wait for like a month yeah before we could get copy of the paper we'll write to somebody in the us mm-hmm. they'll xerox it put it in an envelope and then mail it to us wow <laughs> and it takes quite some time before we get the paper yeah. and, uh, and uh, this was like snail mail right so mm-hmm. they uh, and then, and then uh, so we, we we did quite a bit of uh, reading and so that was essentially my entree into my phd program as well because the survey mm-hmm. uh, was uh, so well received and popular Mm-hmm. that uh, that it uh, became uh, you know uh, you know my my advisors my eventual advisor mm-hmm. actually had read the paper had mm-hmm. read the survey paper and uh, basically just said just put my name on the you know your envelope when you apply okay. to university mm-hmm. and then wow. i'll take you so Please. that's basically how i ended up uh, working with andy barto okay as a master student uh, 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 you know taking that decision that uh, i would basically spend let's say next 5 uh, or 6 years doing phd in, in in this domain which would have been very very niche at that time so did you consider that or it was purely passion driven that uh, uh, you took the decision to kind of do a phd on the subject so I, i'm not exactly sure how to parse that question mm-hmm. because both your options seem to sound the same to me okay <laughs> but uh, uh, so yeah so i was very passionate about this area mm-hmm. for sure and uh, i'm i'm like a third generation teacher right so mm-hmm. i knew that i wanted to become a teacher okay. and other career options in mind and then at that point of time if you want to teach in one of the iits or iis you needed to do a phd Mm-hmm. so that i was going to do a phd was very clear mm-hmm. and uh, and because of uh, how much uh, i really started loving reinforcement learning during my masters mm-hmm. there was no question about me doing something else okay okay so at no point of time did i actually actively consider not doing a phd and taking up a job i mean like okay. yeah this is a done deal i mean it was there in my head okay it was also i mean a lot of fortunate circumstances because my family did not really need me to go and work you know mm-hmm. 
there are a whole bunch of other things that needed to, you know, stars had to align and things had to fall in place, so mm-hmm. metaphorically speaking. Sure. And uh, so everything was fine. So mm-hmm. I could I could pursue this as my career. So sure, sure. Now being an academic thing and looking at, uh, you know, the kind of constraints uh, the students are uh, struggling with mm-hmm. right, before they make this decision, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I just think that I had it uh, easy in some sense because okay. it was a hard choice for me to work on. Mm-hmm. The hard part was uh, leaving uh, Satikirti and going doing my PhD elsewhere. Okay. So he was such an amazing advisor. Imagine, mm-hmm. like, he's letting me, a master's student, completely move in a new direction. And he was actually willing to spend time reading all those new papers which are not in his domain mm-hmm. so that he could help me write a good thesis. Okay. Right? I mean, an advisor like this is amazing. Right. right? Yeah. I, yeah. Thought, I, I wanted to do my PhD with him. Mm-hmm. But he wanted me to go abroad because he said that uh, your job opportunities are better in Indian academia mm-hmm. if you have a PhD from outside than if you have one from outside. Oh, wow. mm-hmm. That's changed, that changed significantly, but still. Sure. Uh, back then, I think uh, he had my best interest at heart. Yeah. And he sent me away. And uh, and I went to another amazing advisor. So I mean, mm-hmm. I have no, finally, at the end of the day, I have no regrets. But it was a hard choice to make at that point. Sure, sure. And then with Professor uh, Andrew Barto, you did the algebraic uh, framework for abstraction of uh, uh, reinforcement learning. So can you tell us uh, a bit about that? What was the research? So one of the main uh, questions Mm -hmm. uh, we were wrestling with uh, was, you know, how humans are so good at you know learning one one problem, like learning to solve one problem. And very quickly, you know, transferring that knowledge to another domain. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if I know how to, you know, open one bottle cap, mm-hmm. you know, I know how to open a multitude of bottle caps. Of course, there is a one that will be very different that will come in. Yeah. But then I can very quickly adapt myself to that, right? If, or if I know how to grasp one cup and drink from it, mm-hmm. I more or less know how to very quickly to go to other cups, you know? Mm-hmm. So we started looking at this question of how can you do this transfer between things that are similar? Mm-hmm. Right. So how can I learn to solve one problem and quickly go to the other problem that's similar, mm-hmm. so that I don't have to do the learning from scratch? Right. Sure. So mm-hmm. that is the question I started working on, maybe a couple of years into my PhD, mm-hmm. and then we kind of came to a point where you know we needed to formally define what similar means. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, when I say, I mean, you yeah. kind of you have an intuitive grasp of when I'm giving you this example. Correct. Have an intuitive grasp of what similar means, but what does it mean formally? Can I come up with a formal characterization of similarity? Mm-hmm. So we went around searching for a mathematical language in which we can write this, mm-hmm. and uh, we ended up with abstract algebra and uh, the mathematics of homomorphisms. Mm-hmm. So it's essentially, the idea goes back to groups, mm-hmm. right? So, so, so I mean, I don't want to get into too much mathematics. It's certainly sure. not on a podcast. Mm-hmm. We don't have a whiteboard to dribble things on, mm-hmm. uh, but. Um, <clears throat> So the idea is the following. Mm-hmm. So I would say two things are similar. Mm-hmm. If for everything I can do from one situation, mm-hmm. like for every decision I can make in say situation A, mm-hmm. there is a decision in situation B mm-hmm. that has similar effects. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. So for every decision I can make in uh, say situation A, mm-hmm. there is a decision in situation B Mm-hmm. That has similar effects. Okay. okay. And uh, not defining similar in terms of similar. 
Mm-hmm. Exactly. So yeah, that was what I was going to ask. It's a recursive definition, mm-hmm. and it turns out that you can actually show that this this is well defined mathematically, mm-hmm. right? And uh, people have done this in other uh, domains as well. So, like I said, uh, you know, groups like this is going back to abstract algebra, mm-hmm. like sets, and then you have groups, and then you have fields, and so on. So on. This is mm-hmm. talking about group theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people have done it there. People have done it in abstractions of programs. Mm-hmm. You know. people trying to do formal analysis of correctness of programs people have defined something similar mm-hmm. right i've done this in the context of graphs so there are many many different domains where people have actually defined this kind of a recursive similarity and shown that this this uh, similarity is actually well defined mm-hmm. and uh, to get to more uh, details I, i at least need illustrations or something to write on right so sure. mm-hmm. there are enough material on my web page mm-hmm. uh, but i can do one thing i can uh, you know share a small slide deck that i have which you can link from the page so i'll do that yeah yeah so yeah. more more clarity on this uh, illustration mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so what what turned out was that uh, that one of the key results that not during my phd but later with one of my master students mm-hmm. that we established is this notion of similarity that we define on the reinforcement learning problems mm-hmm. is exactly the same as the notion of similarity that you would define on uh, you know Uh, what uh, computer scientists call graphs okay right? so mm-hmm. nodes and collections of edges and so on and so forth mm-hmm. so very very simple graphs it turns out that even though the reinforcement learning problem has a lot more structure to it mm-hmm. mathematically the question of similarity is a lot lot more simpler one than one would have expected oh that's interesting that was actually a very very interesting insight that we came but did uh, that didn't come through my phd but with the work that with one of my master students mm-hmm. so in 2008 that we found this mm-hmm. and uh, yeah so that was a very very interesting insight that we had but my phd was more on uh, you know characterizing this notion of similarity mm-hmm. formally yeah and also extending it in a lot of non trivial ways where you you had you know notion of exact similarity mm-hmm. right and then uh, you have notions of approximate similarity yeah for every decision you can make in situation a there is a decision in uh, situation b mm-hmm. that is within a certain distance of the decision in situation a interesting but mm-hmm. distance is measured in terms of the effects that you create correct so roughly if you want to think if i open if i screw a bottle here and it kind of you know gets comes undone mm-hmm. i can do the same action or some similar action here that makes the bottle open 50% of the way right right so something some close in the sure. sense of the effects that you get Yeah, and so all of these we formalize, and that was basically what my PhD was. Yeah, and did you come across situations where you know intuitively you know that these are similar, but uh, mathematically it was different, or the other way around that mathematically it was saying that uh, these things are similar, but intuitively you know that they are different. So let me put it this way: so the the notions, the mathematical notions of similarity that we define, are mm-hmm. on an abstract model of the world. Mm-hmm. on a very abstract model of mathematically very abstract model of the world right mm-hmm. so as soon as i start mapping this to the real world quote and quote real world mm-hmm. i have to do a lot of approximations yeah right so a lot of the nice guarantees that the theory gives mm-hmm. in that abstract representation of the world mm-hmm. might not hold when you are actually operating in the real world right right it it gives you a very good handle mm-hmm. and uh, in fact the theory that uh, i developed is very very generic mm-hmm. and you can always find a way to map it to any notions of similarity that you want 
<laughs> but uh, but i know but the mapping itself might be very complicated that it might turn out to be not useful sure mm-hmm. in practice so that is the problem that we have with this framework mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. framework is too generic mm-hmm. so that is the problem we have with this framework we worked on certain uh, specializations of this framework mm-hmm. to make it uh, more tractable to use in in real life mm-hmm. when you are actually talking about sensor data and so on and so forth mm-hmm. and uh, so i mean in fact we even did some experiments with real robots and uh, other things interesting right in such cases uh, because you are making all these assumptions to simplify the problem there are instances where you could potentially think of something as similar mm-hmm. but the the approximation that you are working with does not capture that similarity correct correct so okay. for, for example uh, i might think of uh, you know uh, let me give you a concrete example you mm-hmm. say i'm working with uh, uh, robots right and we did some work with humanoid robots mm-hmm. Right. So it turns out that uh, you know the humanoid robots uh, two arms mm-hmm. right give you constraints uh, that are not present if i have only one arm basically i one arm can run into the other right mm-hmm. right so mm-hmm. in the abstractions that we are using we might not model this collision between two arms two arms correct mm-hmm. so what what might look like oh if you move this one arm you know wave it in front of your face you should be able to wave the other arm in front of your face mm-hmm. because both arms might clash might clash correct mm-hmm. so those kinds of things where your domain becomes a little bit more complex and you are not capturing the complexity in your models mm-hmm. then what i predict as should be similar might not actually work mm-hmm. in situations like this right so interesting interesting there are, there are drawbacks but uh, the thing is it gives you a very nice intuition as to what what the similarity mean uh, yeah. in, in the abstractions that we use in rl people have i mean this has been pretty widely cited as well more than uh, we have received more than 300 350 citations for this homomorphism work mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, so a lot of other groups have picked up on it and they have developed this idea further for different kinds of uh, specialized settings and so on so interesting interesting and uh, there have been some transfer learning frameworks that have built on homomorphism as well that is where we wanted to go originally if you remember mm-hmm. yeah yeah and so basically there are other groups which have picked up on homomorphisms and built transfer frameworks on top of it mm-hmm. apart from the ones that i have done interesting interesting so post your you know phd in developing this framework uh, you uh, you came back to india and uh, you started pursuing your research uh, uh, from iit madras right so what kind of uh, problems have you been working after that and then what are some of the works which uh, uh, you know you have done and uh, uh, how are they kind of shaping up okay so i mean once i joined here for my first faculty mm-hmm. i did explore a lot of different areas mm-hmm. couple of reasons for it one reinforcement learning was not hard yeah back in 2004 when i started as a faculty Mm-hmm. so finding people who wanted to do reinforcement learning was actually difficult right well, the subject was interesting people will come and sit in my class maybe i'll have like 10 students in a reinforcement learning course mm-hmm. and uh, so and, and many of them would not want to do research in rl and so on and so forth so i started yeah. exploring other areas mm-hmm. i did quite a bit of work in nlp mm-hmm. like uh, doing language modeling and language understanding mm-hmm. and i also started uh, building up a program on uh, learning on graphs okay mm-hmm. learning and so on and so forth right mm-hmm. so what we have done so with nlp we, we did a little bit of work but then we didn't push it too much mm-hmm. but uh, with learning on graphs you have done a lot of work 
right so this is going beyond reinforcement learning right? yeah mm-hmm. and so since i'm going to keep my focus on rl so i'm not getting into the details of that but just sure. wanted to point out that uh, about half of my time is spent half of my research time is spent on working with learning on graphs sure sure mm-hmm. and other half so what we have done with rl is uh, several things so uh, one i told you already i continued yeah. working on homomorphisms built this theory on showing that it is uh, not more complex than yeah. working on and the second uh, stream that i have been th- working on is on learning more complex policies mm-hmm. so we typically think of uh, you know reinforcement learning policies as a mapping from states to actions mm-hmm. we get a little com- uh, technical here mm-hmm. uh, direct mapping from states to actions mm-hmm. right but quite often if you think about how humans reason on problem solving mm-hmm. we don't quite map directly to you know actions mm-hmm. but we map on to say sub problems mm-hmm. you know, suppose i want to know how to get from here to bangalore i'm not just going to say okay open the door step out of the building call a cab yeah right i'm going to say, hmm, maybe you should catch a train you know go get get on the shatapati book a ticket on the shatapati yeah you know get on train and go to bangalore right mm-hmm. so now okay how do i book a train and then there's a series of uh, actions that you have to do and then how do i book uh, get on the train that's a whole bunch of things that you have to do and so on so Mm-hmm. we typically break it down into this kind of uh, you know uh, layered structure you know right. let's take a problem solve make it into simpler problems and so on and so forth mm-hmm. right so how do i get uh, reinforcement learning agents to you know learn this kind of structure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so this is something that has been fascinating from a long, from a long time yeah. right? in fact when i was in uh, amherst mm-hmm. when i was doing my phd was when a lot of these hierarchical rl frameworks were being developed so i was there mm-hmm. from the start Mm-hmm. on working on this hierarchical uh, reinforcement learning frameworks i've continued to do that mm-hmm. right? and uh, so we have proposed uh, many 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 interesting uh, models in fact we have one of the first provable results on hierarchical rl mm-hmm. in the sense that uh, we show something that uh, you can randomly you know select sub problems mm-hmm. provided your random sub problems satisfy certain distributions mm-hmm. right you can solve any problem you set on a domain easily so it's, it's okay. a very technical result mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but then it was the first provable result in the domain of uh, reinforcement learning so this is something that we did with this back in 2012 right okay. and then we had a series of uh, papers like this on various kinds of uh, you know decomposition hierarchical decomposition problems and things like that so so one of the things that happened in 2014 was that deparel came with all the satari domains yeah right and, uh, so the nice thing is that now gave me more complex domains to work on right so Correct. if i'm going to solve facto i don't have to build hierarchies mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but if solving more complex problems then i would i can explore these kinds of hierarchies mm-hmm. right? and we have done a series of uh, things on it one of the interesting things that picked up a bit of attention was the following mm-hmm. right? so when you are solving a problem uh, especially a very complex problem when humans solve it right so we don't mm-hmm. you know take decisions at a very very high frequency mm-hmm. we if we take a decision we tend to you know keep with it for a few few minutes mm-hmm. or a few seconds before we change to another decision right mm-hmm. so so what we said was hey you don't take decisions at the granularity at which your uh, you know frames are changing in your input mm-hmm. but you decide independently so i'm going to pick an action mm-hmm. i'm also going to decide how many how many time steps i'm going to persist with that action 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Right? You, don't, you don't decide to change it every time step. You know, in, sure. in the most, most deep RL methods, mm-hmm. uh, so they heuristically pick a, a persistence of four. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just, just do, doing cross validation or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, they pick a number four, right? That's because that is what worked initially in the Atari game simulations that DeepMind ran. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the question is, is number four the right number? Of course, on an average, yes. Yeah. But for each game, it's not going to be the same number. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, as we suspected, even during the game, right, mm-hmm. uh, the number doesn't stay fixed. Right. Mm-hmm. Because some some instances you would like to repeat, uh, uh, keep an action persisting for a long time. Some instances you want to change it very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So basically, we came up with a framework that can do this learning, not mm-hmm. just for uh, Atari games, but mm-hmm. not just for DQN, mm-hmm. but for a variety of different uh, uh, architectures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It just it just it's like a meta framework that can wrap around any reinforcement learning framework you have mm-hmm. and adds adds this persistence business to it dear listener i am extremely excited to announce that more than 50000 data scientists have registered and benefited from our trainings portal there are three things which matter to us in our trainings Number one, we make sure that you understand the underlying concepts through simple and easy to understand content. Number two, all our courses come with industry relevant projects and assignments. We work closely with companies to make sure that the problems in the course are all real life, and they come directly from industry. And number three. we make sure that you get all the support you need in this journey we provide phone and email support along with live question and answer sessions in short we are 100% committed to making sure that you are supported in your data science journey through these courses check out these courses today at trainings.analyticsvidya.com and in some sense it's a parallel to uh, focus or attention in human mind right so how closely i am kind of uh, t- uh, following something and taking decisions on it i would say attention is an orthogonal entity to this mm-hmm. so if you want to look at what uh, the psychology literature calls it so closest thing would be to something called chunking okay sure mm-hmm. right? so, so chunking is essentially you know you learn to you know take actions in chunks chunks okay mm-hmm. so when, when i start doing something i just do like two three things together, together. i don't make for every every time step along the way mm-hmm. right so this is called chunking so it's closer to chunking than anything else then okay and uh, so it's actually started getting uh, quite a bit of uh, attention so even guys from deep mind talk about it uh, mm-hmm. david silver referred to it in one of his keynotes recently mm-hmm. at, at uh, so it's getting some attention so that's that's one thing that we looked at mm-hmm. and, uh, then uh, there are a bunch of other hierarchical rl stuff that we have done mm-hmm. including a lot of work on attention actually Mm-hmm. and uh, this is like different forms of attention and in fact part of my phd work itself was on modeling attention mm-hmm. and it's not attention as in the usual deep learning sense but yeah. slightly slightly more uh, uh, you know involved forms of attention that mm-hmm. i have looked at. um but then uh, the ad- yeah we have a few frameworks in that so one thing that again which has been uh, popular is something which we call attend adapt and transfer mm mm-hmm. 
which is a mechanism for uh, looking at, uh, you know, I have multiple experts. Mm-hmm. These, are, these are people who know how to solve certain problems in my domain. I have a collection mm-hmm. of problems. Mm-hmm. I have experts who know how to solve certain problems. Mm-hmm. I want to design a solution to a new problem. And I want to do this by take pick and, pick and choosing, you know, different experts. Yeah. Pick and choosing different experts mm-hmm. to solve different parts of the new problem. Mm-hmm. So the example that we typically give is, let us say you want to learn to play tennis, Mm -hmm. then maybe I can copy a forehand from one guy and a backhand from another guy and the serve from the third guy Mm -hmm. and so on. So instead of just saying that I'll just take one expert and then transfer the knowledge to my target, Mm -hmm. I can take multiple experts and take bits and pieces and then transfer it to the target and we set it up a whole thing as a reinforcement learning system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there is no explicit supervision needed for the attention mechanism. It just learns through the usual RL mechanism. Sure. And, and we can show the attention dynamically shifting as as the as the task progresses. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that is something which again people have been trying to extend. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, there was a paper at NIPS recently that built on top of that. Yeah. So this is one one direction of research that we have been looking at. So it's kind of learning complex policies, learning hierarchies, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Other direction that I have been looking at is to going beyond rewards. Okay. You know, so mm-hmm. learning typically works with only reward signals. Yeah. But then there's when you're talking about real problems, there are a lot of other signals that you could potentially be getting. Even mm-hmm. for example, some stage you might even have supervision. Mm-hmm. Somebody might tell you, okay, in this state, this is what you have to do. Right? Okay. Mm-hmm. In other cases, you might be able to observe fellow agents or fellow humans operating in the domain and you can get some information from them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In some cases, people might be able to give you other information. Mm-hmm. For example, they might tell you that, hey, I don't really know what you have to do, mm-hmm. but that door is locked. You know, you need a key to open the door. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not telling you how to solve the problem, sure. but I'm telling you just some like in, in, in between piece of information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? So all these kinds of you know, feedback can be obtained, especially if you're talking about learning in a world with the human being in it, right? So you can right. get all the information from the human. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how do I build systems that take into account uh, more than just the reward? So mm-hmm. how do I build a reinforcement learning system that has a reward as just one channel of information it gets from the world? Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. So we have done uh, some, some pieces of work in that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what has been more interesting recently is that the work that we have been doing with imitation learning. So mm-hmm. where I'm not just learning from rewards, mm-hmm. but I'm also learning from trajectories that I observe that humans are following. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's that we have done that's, uh, I mean, it's a lot of work is happening in imitation learning, yeah. but we've been uh, trying to define notions of smoothness and safety mm-hmm. and all those uh, more, I would say, higher order constraints on the policies mm-hmm. than just optimizing uh, expected rewards. Mm-hmm. So that is that's another direction of work that we have been pushing. Mm-hmm. And basically, the current active research that's happening in my group in RL. And uh, alongside this, uh, you know, research and the work which you mentioned, so you've also been, uh, you know, working uh, on industry projects and, uh, you know, for example, the Robert Bosch Center, uh, Center of Excellence or uh, Data Science and Artificial Intelligence. So, so uh, on the industry side, uh, how how are the things developing? What are some of the applications which you've seen or you've worked on on the industry side? Um, so there are two things here. So I do a mm-hmm. lot of industry projects. Yeah, I do a lot of consulting. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
um, not all of it is in RL. In fact, most sure. of it is on reinforcement learning. So, but we do a lot of work in uh, both uh, in language mm-hmm. and also in multimodal learning. Okay. And mm-hmm. on learning with networks. Mm-hmm. Right. And quite often, uh, many of our industry engagement are also on more open-ended blue sky research. Mm-hmm. And uh, some places where we have tried using reinforcement learning or on you know uh, things where there is a an optimization component, explicit uh, optimization component rolled into the problem, mm-hmm. but where we don't have a model. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I can't really get into complete uh, details of this, sure. mm-hmm. but you can think of this as, you know, very, very complex combinatorial optimization problems mm-hmm. for which uh, you can't use the classical heuristics uh, for solving it. And therefore we fall back on reinforcement learning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that is one thing that we have looked at. And mm-hmm. with Intel, we are exploring uh, multiple projects. This is more on the open source side, so I can talk mm-hmm. about this. Yeah. Uh, one is on, uh, you know, how to do this, uh, you know, safe reinforcement learning. Mm-hmm. So that I can basically give you guarantees on, after learning on simulated worlds, mm-hmm. it can it give you some guarantees on the worst case performance of the problem. Sure. Mm-hmm. So that's something that we have been looking at. And, you know, the obvious with the eventual aim of trying to use this in uh, autonomous driving. Yeah. Right. And uh, we also have looked in, we have looked at multi-agent RL. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, that's the direction also that we are pursuing. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, uh, so again, this is more, again, not an industry application per se. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You want to look at uh, the industry application part. This is one, one thing was on the communal optimization. Mm-hmm. Second direction, which is uh, of uh, interest to me is to do inverse RL by observing human behavior, right? Suppose I have a human being, let us say I have a human being, uh, you know, operating in a, in a shop floor, mm-hmm. right? In a, in a, in a, so looking at certain machines and moving around, mm-hmm. uh, can I figure out what is the objective function that person is optimizing, treating him like a reinforcement learning agent? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then can I give, you know, means of optimizing the objective function better? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Saying, hey, look, this is what he seems to be doing. And mm-hmm. here, is, here is an RL way of solving for this problem. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is the order in which you should be doing things. Essentially, sure. like optimizing uh, operations on work. Yeah. On, on mm-hmm. So this is a problem that we are uh, thinking of exploring. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and there are, uh, uh, again, another uh, instance is uh, uh, online uh, customization mm-hmm. to, to end users. This is in some consumer electronic products. We want them to Basically, there's enough intelligence, embedded intelligence on most of the consumer electronics out there mm-hmm. that you can run, uh, you, uh, you know, how many ever deep, deep networks you want on them, right? So, mm-hmm. so, so much compute power out there. Mm-hmm. Right? So the idea here is to see if we can make them adapt themselves to human behavior, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, do that more uh, in a more uh, you know, rapid way using RL for uh, exploration and experimentation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you can use RL for trying out different things, mm-hmm. so that uh, they can so they can do uh, like uh, you know zero in on what the human wants very quickly. So that's mm-hmm. another direction I would like to explore. Interesting. So these are things that we have been looking at. So then, I mean, what I'm really you know uh, surprised is that uh, how many people are now willing to try reinforcement learning for uh, industry solutions. Back in mm-hmm. 2004, yeah. five, if you had suggested using RL for an uh, industry problem, people would have just you know stopped. <laughs> But yeah. now, now things have changed a lot. In fact, sometimes, sometimes people are coming to me and asking, hey, we really, really want to solve this problem for our client. Can you use reinforcement learning to solve it? Because that's, you know, that's what they want. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> okay, that's the other extreme of uh, what. Other extreme, it's actually. In fact, recently I had to tell a company that I'll take up your problem only if you give up the insistence of me using RL to solve it. Mm-hmm. I'll use whatever technique that's works right yeah. for your problem. I'll do that, but I'll need to analyze it and then take a call. Mm-hmm. If you come to me saying that hey, I have a problem, use RL to solve it, I would have to say no. completely uh, you know so given the way uh, rl is uh, getting adopted in industry i can i can see why why people are trying to do that mm-hmm. but uh, that's true and uh, oh, you know, oh, yeah. Yeah. sorry sorry that's the second point i wanted to make mm-hmm. i really would like to you know say something about the robert bot center right? yeah yeah so it is a it is actually a, you know a csr funded center mm-hmm. right? so the nice thing about it the center is actually funding fundamental research Wow. Okay. <laughs> so we don't have to work on an industry-relevant problem. Right? Mm-hmm. It's primarily for funding things that are, you know, more blue sky. We can we get to choose what problems we want to work on. Mm-hmm. So Bosch is really not pushing us to, you know, work on problems of relevance to Bosch. Okay. So their goal is to improve the quality of the AI ecosystem in India, and so if they want to see more cutting-edge research coming out. Mm-hmm. Our deliverable to Bosch is to increase the global visibility of AI research happening. Okay. Oh, great. Not, not, not uh, solving bot problems. It is an amazing vision that they have. So I really need to call out uh, on that, right? So I think. Sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And uh, uh, in terms of you know uh, getting uh, into uh, the work which is happening, so is there a way people can kind of contribute to the work which is uh, uh, happening? I mean, is there a Uh, let's say equivalent of open source projects etc which are happening in the center where people can uh, uh, so one of the things that we are doing now i mean at least one of the mandates for the center is to put out more and more uh, data and uh, and uh, libraries in in open domain okay so we are uh, basically in, so jan first we released our first uh, open github repository project Mm-hmm. on uh, looking at community production networks okay mm-hmm. so uh, next week we'll be releasing uh, our another one on uh, using uh, you know game theory on uh, on networks mm-hmm. to measure importance of nodes okay. these are works that were done here mm-hmm. at, at iit madras mm-hmm. and we are essentially making them into you know readily usable packages so people can start running experiments on them Mm-hmm. So we have been been putting them out. These are on GitHub public repository, so people can you know pull them out and uh, and, and and work with these repositories. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are happy to collaborate with people on generating uh, open source data sets. In fact, we are actually talking to the government now, Tamil Nadu government, mm-hmm. in order to make some of the you know quote unquote public data mm-hmm. available in a more usable form. Sure, sure. These are data that's not necessarily of a sensitive nature, but uh, yeah. they are not usable now. So not this is we are working with the government, mm-hmm. and uh, so that is something that's going to come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have not really launched a very large-scale open-source project, for example, along the lines of say LibSVM or something. Yeah, yeah. Yet the center, mm-hmm. but the center has been in operation for only about a year now. So okay, so mm-hmm. we, are, we are slowly moving towards uh, you know getting uh, larger projects like that launched. Mm-hmm. we do have a lot of uh, opportunities for people to come and work from the center we have internship programs we have uh, you know post baccalaureate programs mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we also have uh, we encourage post doc applications and things like that so that's more of a uh, niche thing yeah. the post baccalaureate program is something which students who just finished their btech mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. uh, within the last two years could apply for and spend a year or so in in, in the center working on problems oh. mm-hmm. and uh, and we also of course uh, do external collaborations and mm-hmm. uh, but not necessarily funded sure uh, so we could potentially work with collaborators as well so that mm-hmm. is an interesting problem that people have but yeah. the main thing is bandwidth Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are only so many of us at the center. Mm-hmm. We are large. The center has about eighty plus people now, part of it. Mm-hmm. But we also run run several projects at the center. So yeah. So the question is one of bandwidth. So right. Uh, I, yeah. So the the short answer is we don't still have large collaborative open source projects yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We are pushing a lot of repositories into the public domain. Sure. Hopefully, people can pick up, and if they have things that they would want to work on, uh, they can approach us, saying that, "Hey, we would like to really extend this repository in this direction." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure, definitely. That helps, and uh, you know, I would. Uh, what I'll do at my end is I'll share some of those links uh, in the notes uh, along with the podcast, so that uh, you know, if if people are interested in looking at them, that they can access uh, the same. Hi there. If you missed our flagship conference in November, Data Hack Summit, all the videos from the conference are now available for you to watch on trainings.analyticswithya.com. We had close to 50 power sessions including more than 10 hack sessions on topic ranging from feature engineering, computer vision to reinforcement learning. There were several talks from healthcare there were demos of connected devices and even talk about applications of ai and ml in oil and gas check out these talks today to up your learning quotient taking a step forward and kind of looking at the next 3 uh, to 5 years so how do you see uh, you know uh, reinforcement learning specifically but uh, in general uh, you know more broadly ai uh, what are some of the developments you see happening in next 3 to 5 years what are some of the most exciting things you think would be coming out in in that time period in in, in reinforcement learning reinforcement learning specifically but ai in general i mean see so one of the things that uh, people are really pushing very hard in the rl space particularly is to you know address this simturial problem so what they call the simturial problem because a lot of reinforcement learning agents are trained particularly in simulation yeah right but then uh, there's always this gap when you go from simulation to the real world mm-hmm. right so how can you address this gap so that is a that is a challenge that people have been looking at very very hard Mm-hmm. and it is very important to actually build fielded rl applications mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think we'll get some very good uh, answers to that in the next uh, few years next mm-hmm. two to three years and this uh, uh, the problem of using hierarchical rl with um, with deep reinforcement learning models mm-hmm. right, uh, should 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 be out because right now there are sporadically a few papers yeah uh, but we don't have a standard accepted model that you can use mm-hmm. right but i think that will change mm-hmm. because you really need that for uh, solving very large problems right. Mm-hmm. right and there is a side effect to using hierarchies in that it uh, actually makes your uh, policy is more explainable mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so talking about the policy at a very very fine grain level mm-hmm. you can actually explain things at a 
you know at a higher sub problem mm-hmm. level. macro level yeah macro levels and that makes it a lot more easier for people to comprehend than if you start telling them at the nitty gritty yeah. the muscle twitch level of policies <laughs> yeah and uh, so that uh, that is another thing that uh, will happen mm-hmm. and the larger ai space right so that is one thing which i'm seeing uh, uh, that's going to happen mm-hmm. uh so there are a few things that we need to address in the ai space right mm-hmm. so for ai to become like have the next quantum leap mm-hmm. so one of them is zero shot or few shot learning yeah uh which is important for rl as well like learn learn with a fewer and fewer examples right mm-hmm. and the second thing is going to be you know truly uh you know push push deep learning to the edge mm-hmm. because there are like zillions of use cases that you have Mm-hmm. Right. Once you say that uh, learning can happen where the data is, mm-hmm. so at least the inference, efficient inference, can happen where the data is, and so you're going to start looking at more and more compact models. We are almost there now. Right? Mm-hmm. So that's going to happen for sure. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we are still. I don't know if the explainable AI, explainability problem would get solved. Yeah. In any form that we understand it now. Mm-hmm. I mean, hey, can you explain it to me like a human does? Right. what might probably happen is that uh, we might evolve uh, you know technical norms or legal norms for what is explainable mm-hmm. and and then have methods that achieve those norms mm-hmm. that could potentially happen so something that uh, you know legally allows you to use ai in uh, various places yeah as opposed to you know more you know well understood uh, notions of explainability Sure, sure. So that's, that's probably something that will happen in the next four or five years because the momentum for adopting AI is really huge, mm-hmm. and so problems of learning, you know, coming up with explainable uh, solutions mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. may not let that stop optionally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they may find workarounds for it. Sure, <laughs> that's probably something that will happen. Mm-hmm. Sure, and uh, you know, uh, so. Uh, if i were to further expand the timeline and uh, you know uh, assume for a minute that you know you were uh, coming out of your masters program and in there was a uh, and you wanted to choose a area for doing your phd again uh, but in today's uh, age what would that area be so what do you see as you know making a huge impact in a timeline of uh, 10 years from now so one thing that will probably have a significant effect down the line is all these attempts at understanding the dynamics of how learning progresses on neural networks mm-hmm. right so that is one direction for sure mm-hmm. right that will have a significant impact so one of the reasons is that see once we understood what was happening in you know single like simple one layer two layer neural networks we could come up with a lot more efficient you know explanations for what was happening and that kind of led us to other ways of solving the problems mm-hmm. right and so what will happen once we understand this dynamics of this very very large neural networks we are close i think we are we are okay we have made significant progress i, I should take it back I, we are not close but we have made significant progress mm-hmm. so once we kind of crack that you know once we understand what is truly happening mm-hmm. dynamics of the learning and pretty sure we are going to come up with revolutionary learning algorithms you know all this one shot learning few shot learning all of the things will be, become possible mm-hmm. once we get this true understanding of uh, how, how the dynamics of learning works right mm-hmm. so that is that is that i think and i don't think it's a problem that's going to get solved in the next 2 or 3 years probably yeah. for a decade mm-hmm. or 
maybe slightly more. That's the direction that that would be interesting to work on. One. Sure. Mm-hmm. The second direction is essentially this is a personal uh, thing also. Mm-hmm. Where go back and look at what people have done with symbolic reasoning. So AI always goes through these cycles mm-hmm. where you know symbolic reasoning becomes you know dominant and then it goes away and connectionism becomes dominant mm-hmm. and it goes into a decline and then symbolism comes up again and then connectionism they keep going back and forth mm-hmm. and so it would be great if we can go back and figure out a way of you know addressing symbolism mm-hmm. in 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 the connectionist setting mm-hmm. i think we have enough you know uh, f- free parameters so to say in in a deep learning setup mm-hmm. that we start uh, exploring how you would represent uh, symbolic reasoning with uh, with uh, with the deep architecture mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so i think that is a marriage that needs to happen mm-hmm. uh, for uh, a significant sea change to happen in uh, ai you know mm-hmm. so again this will allow you to do more deliberative uh, reasoning yeah and um, and that is something very important and creating a significant uh, impact mm-hmm. and again i don't see this problem even though people are talking about it people like josh tenenbaum uh, mm-hmm. talk about that and uh, it's, i don't see it happening overnight or in the next couple of years mm-hmm. i think we'll be making baby steps but this is a problem for for the next decade to solve yeah. so how do we get symbolic reasoning on deep learning i think that's something that we should look at these are two areas i would say yeah both the, both of them are uh, you know uh, big leaps uh, in the way we would uh, understand ai yeah, and the way things uh, uh, we would be able to do things if we are able to do any of the two things so thanks thanks uh, a lot for sharing that and uh, i mean overall there there were so many you know useful information in the podcast i'm sure the, uh, it would come out really well anything else which you would want to you know mention to the community any advice uh, <coughs> either for people who want to get into this domain or people who are already uh, in this domain anything else which you would want to share so this is this is something that i you know tell all my students always right mm-hmm. so there is no one right answer to anything mm-hmm. right so the answer is always it depends mm-hmm. right so don't get hung up on you know solving uh, is everything using deep learning or everything using rl or you know whatever is your favorite svm mm-hmm. right? so so the right answer to problems depend on a variety of factors mm-hmm. so explore all the factors mm-hmm. and then and then jump into something right so mm-hmm. uh, so i think true ai is something that is made of a you know like a bag of tricks mm-hmm. there is no one uh, hammer that fixes all 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 problems yeah yeah so so if you are starting out or if you already have expertise in a particular area in ai mm-hmm. uh, do do think of widening your horizon just don't learn one thing mm-hmm. but but learn learn multiple tools so that you can choose the right one for the right job mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sure so i mean this is because of the slight frustration of how people talk about hey deep learning solves everything in the world so <laughs> sure there's sure. a bit of that coming in but mm-hmm. uh, but then but it's also true that people need to become more more uh, you know more aware of uh, the landscape yeah. uh, hung up on one problem one one solution method mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sure sure uh, no completely understand so uh, once again thanks a lot uh, sir for taking uh, time out for uh, you know doing this podcast and sharing uh, your perspective and your research thanks a lot sir thank you take care yeah bye yeah. thank you Thank you.